1: Egotistical or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then. Lately, we've got lots going on in the political arena, both in the United States and abroad, and we dip into political realms now and again. So today, the question that I'm asking of myself and my guest is the pursuit of happiness and avoidance of risk and pain, and how does that tie into American empire? My first guest today is Stephen Kinzer. He is the author of The Brothers... Reset, Overthrow, All the Shah's Men, and Other Books. He's an award-winning foreign correspondent, and he served as the New York Times bureau chief in Turkey, Germany, and Nicaragua. And as the Boston Globe's Latin America correspondent, he is a senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University and writes a column on world affairs for the Boston Globe. And today we're talking about his new book, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain and the Birth of American Empire. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Very happy to talk with you about this. So our founding fathers in 1776 wrote in the Declaration of Independence that we are founded on the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why has the United States so often intervened in foreign lands, which could be construed as interrupting the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of others?
2: You're absolutely right, and uh, George Washington in his farewell address Famously asked, Can it be that Providence has not connected the happiness of a nation with its virtue? Uh, we've strayed very far from that. I think uh, Americans got into a mindset that uh, makes us feel we need to expand, we need to dominate, we need to win, we need to conquer. This is something that's set, I think, in the American mind. And it has often brought pain not only to our target, the target countries of our foreign interventions, but to us. Uh, So we are still a divided nation in our soul, I think, about this great question, should America intervene in the affairs of other countries? And sometimes we feel like we're missionaries. We really want to help those countries. America is a teaching nation. We're not a learning nation. We feel that we have so much to give the world. Uh, And it's difficult for us to understand that not everybody in the world wants what we have to offer. Not everybody wants to be like us and live like us. So it's difficult for us to imagine that what we want here in America to create happiness and security and prosperity is not what other people want. Uh, There isn't just one definition of what makes people happy. This is all decided by history and culture and religion and upbringing. We have to understand that The world is made up of a lot of different people. The world is really not flat. The world is composed of all sorts of different impulses. And sometimes the United States uh, feels that everybody in the world is just an incomplete American. And we need to go over there and help them complete the process. That often causes great problems for those people, and it also weakens our security in the long run.
1: Indeed. You know, I think you make a really important point that not everybody is waiting to be democratized.
2: Yeah, democracy means different things for different kinds of people. In, in Afghanistan, people ha- were ruled by local councils, what they call shuras. And uh, the only way you could get into the shura was to be the most respected person in your village. Now we came over to Afghanistan and we decided. That's a backward way to run a country. There has to be a president. There has to be a central authority that makes the final decisions, because that's the way we do it. So now there is a parliament in Afghanistan, like we would like. How do you get into the parliament? By being the biggest drug dealer, by being the biggest warlord, by killing all your opponents. So now the kind of so-called democracy that we've implanted in Afghanistan, is actually less democratic than the form that they had developed over many centuries before there even was a United States. But it's difficult for us as Americans to imagine that what we want is not what everyone wants, and one size doesn't fit all.
1: I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and, but there is one area I disagree with you, and that is that We all want to be happy, whether you're talking to somebody in America or Afghanistan or Mongolia, that it may not be the stated goal. But I think we all want to have some level of peace, security and contentment. And that may look different to each one of us. But what what makes us run as human beings is pretty much the same, I think. The question is, how do you get
2: to those uh, great objectives? Uh, The ones you're pointing out are the true goals of society. People want to be secure. They want to be prosperous. They want to be safe. uh, They want to enjoy their uh, family and uh, community lives. But Americans sometimes forget that. We think that what's more important is the style of how you get there. So democracy, for example, is a system that we've chosen not because it seems good in the abstract, but because it gets us what's really important. Democracy itself is not vital because you can't eat it. It doesn't do anything for you. But we choose democracy because it's the ways to help us get those things that are important, like security, happiness, prosperity. Uh, other, in other countries, you still want those same goals, but you can get them through other political systems. So I think sometimes we forget that the goal is not to implant one political system or another. The goal is to ask, what kind of political system brings people in different countries to the same end that we all want to get to? And sometimes we feel there's only one road to get there. This is uh, the debate that is really at the center of my book. Is it America's role to prescribe? What's the best way to get to happiness? I think we, ha- we have a feeling that it is. Americans often believe that we've found the key to creating a safe, prosperous, happy society and how selfish it would be for us to keep that secret to ourselves. We have to go out and share it with other people, particularly those people who are so backward. They don't even understand that they need our help. And this gets (laughs) us into a lot of trouble and also, actually harms the ability of people in other countries to reach the goals that we're hoping to bring them to
1: when we look at the history of this uh, imperialism or american imperialism can you can you cite a date i'm pretty sure you can from your book i mean you talk about it in the book where did when did it begin when did when did america decide to begin projecting its power overseas
2: in U.S. Census Bureau announced that uh, the frontier in America was closed. So no more room to expand inside North America. Then a few years later, as a result of our involvement in Cuba and our war on Spain, we sank the Spanish fleet in a place that no American had ever heard of, which was the Philippine Islands. Then we suddenly had to ask ourselves, so what do we do with the Philippines? So Now there's no more Spanish power. They've ruled here for centuries. Shall we take over the Philippines? Should we allow the Philippines to become independent? Should we take a piece? And that was the beginning of the great debate that uh, took 32 days in the U.S. Senate and riveted the entire population of the United States. It wasn't just about the Philippines. It was really about a more profound question. Should the United States coercive power around the world? It's the question we're still debating today. And uh, the arguments that you'll read about in my book that we made back uh, over 100 years ago, when we were first debating this, are still the ones we're using today.
1: So Stephen, we're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, I want to talk more with you about your new book, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. And I want to direct our listeners over to uh, where to get a hold of you? You are at StephenKinzer.com, on Twitter at Stephen Kinzer, and on Facebook at Stephen.Kinzer.5, right? Is you can find me in
2: all those places, and on my own website, uh, you can not only buy my new book and my past ones, but you can read some of my other rants and uh, a lot of fun uh, little bites in there.
1: Well, the rants, I mean, I, I, I love a good rant. I think the, a good rant is part of happiness, actually.
2: <laughs> but yeah, you want to unburden yourself a little bit. And actually, since I became a newspaper columnist, my wife has become much happier. And she tells me, thank goodness you have another outlet and you don't have to come home and give me your rant.
1: Exactly. You know, And the rant is part of being, in my view, like seen, heard and understood, which as women, we love that. How about you? Do you like it? Absolutely. I feel that uh, sometimes we're, we're too subdued,
2: and we limit our debate into very artificial uh, l- limits. Actually, we should let it out. And don't fall into the paradigm of believing what everybody tells you you're supposed to believe. Dare to have your own opinions. In the world of foreign policy, this is just as difficult as it is in private life. There's, there's so much pressure to conform, and uh, there's so much uh, – effort to stop people from having new ideas and new approaches. and That's just as true in the world of international affairs as
1: it is in the affairs of the heart. We will be right back. Here come the tunes.
0: We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if. Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I
1: urge you to download and share this podcast because we're having fun. We're having a good rant with Stephen Kinzer, and we're talking about his new book, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. So, Stephen, prior to the break, we were talking about how important it is to to debate, to rant, to have discourse and challenge The status quo and i think that your book does this in a very wonderful way because it it calls upon history to remind us of what we need to pay attention to right now in the
2: american foreign policy establishment there's tremendous pressure to conform to certain paradigms everybody's supposed to believe that the united states is the indispensable nation the whole world's just waiting for our guidance whenever there's a conflict (laughs) or a crisis, or a confrontation, anywhere in the world, we should get involved. Uh, Now, I hate that view. I don't like that impulse. But we're told that this is the American way. So in my book, I've recovered the original debate over this question of America's role in the world. And one thing I hope people will take from this book is that the argument that the United States should not be a coercive military power, that the United States should have a more diplomatic foreign policy rather than a military foreign policy, that the United States should concentrate its resources on building up our own people and our own country is not a new argument. This is sort of stigmatized as way outside the mainstream and kind of crazy and almost unpatriotic. In fact, this is a rich American tradition that goes back more than 100 years. Many of the major political and intellectual figures in America were great promoters of this idea. In my book, I highlight a number of them, especially Mark Twain. So I discover that Mark Twain was not the sort of gentle, gentle, I love everybody, grandfather rocking on his front porch that we're taught to admire. Mark Twain was a bitter enemy of American involvement in foreign wars. He said that U.S. soldiers who were fighting overseas were carrying a bandit's musket under a polluted flag. And in fact, he wanted to change the flag of the United States to replace the stars with skull and crossbone symbols. He had a great antagonist in Teddy Roosevelt, who was the great nation grabber of that era, So they represent these different poles of the divided American soul. Uh, Mark Twain said that he thought Teddy Roosevelt was clearly insane and the greatest disaster that has befallen our country since the Civil War. Teddy Roosevelt returned the favor by saying he'd like to skin Mark Twain alive. So the intensity (laughs) of that debate reflects the fact that Large numbers of Americans have always been on both sides of this question. We should be intervening abroad in order to defend our friends and protect our interests. No, intervention abroad creates enemies and weakens us. It's this debate that we have been having with ourselves for more than a hundred years and we've never been able to resolve it.
1: And in the present administration, I mean, our president is likely to be challenged with the same thing. You know, when he got into office, I mean, he was pretty gung ho from what he was telling the American public. You know, something's going to happen. We're going in.
2: You're absolutely right. So Americans have this divided soul. We want to guide the world. On the other hand, we want every country to guide itself. Now, those are opposites. You can't believe both. But we do. We, we try to be imperialists and isolationists at the same time. I think our new president is the perfect exemplar of this, uh, and he follows in a pattern of presidents. In my book, I try to trace the history of this argument between intervention and non-intervention over the whole last hundred years. And one pattern I pick up is that in presidents all the way from Teddy Roosevelt to Obama, you have this pattern where in the first years of their administration, they become very excited about using the U.S. Army, uh, invading other countries, projecting our power into the backyards of other empires. But then, after a few years, the bad results of these interventions become clear, the blowback starts to happen, the criticism mounts, and towards the end of their terms, presidents tend to be less interventionist. So Trump, you're right, started out telling us he's going to put Iran on notice, we're going to rip up the Iran agreement, (laughs) and we're going to go into Syria and crush all our enemies there. Now he's telling us we wasted trillions of dollars on Middle East wars. We don't want to have regime change anymore. We're going to concentrate on rebuilding our country. So he, too, is divided. It isn't just that we have some people who believe one thing and some people who believe the opposite. It's that most of us hold both of these impulses in our heart at the same time. We should guide the world. We should let other countries guide themselves.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, at dinner tables around the country and around the world, these conversations go on every, every day. Um, you know, and you mentioned something when we started our conversation about America being a a teaching nation. And we're so young. Sometimes the young need to just shut up and listen.
2: The arc of our history short, as you point out, it's also very misleading, because it teaches us that our country is always going to get richer and more prosperous and more powerful. But that's never happened to any country or empire in history. Uh, I mean, it leads me to wonder, is the United States ready to readjust to being a kind of country that doesn't dominate the world? Because if we're not, we're headed for big trouble ahead. If you look at the countries in the world that have managed to survive over 20 centuries, 30 centuries, countries like China, for example, or Iran, or Persia, uh, you find that they survived this long by learning how to ride the currents of history. They've realized that you don't dominate all the time. No country does. But if you can realize that, and when you have a relative decline, understand that this is okay, you can survive, and then you'll be up again in the future, then you can survive over long, long periods. But there's nothing in our history as Americans, or in our soul, in our psyche, that prepares us for anything else than dominating the world. So can we make this transition? I think that's a key problem for us, and it's not just political it's spiritual and psychological, which uh, really is something that lies at the heart of so many international questions.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more. And when you look at the outcome of this election, America got just what she asked for, whether you agree with it or not, that it's a projection who is sitting in that white house is a projection of our collective psyche, all the fears,
2: all the hopes, all of it. We, we, uh, try to point to Trump as something apart from us. Actually, he is us. He represents us. In many ways, we are tribal. Um, We're not as welcoming and open and diverse as we sometimes like to tell ourselves that we are. Sometimes we can be mean-spirited. And Trump really reflects us. So I think uh, rather than point our finger at, at other people who we feel are pushing our country in the wrong direction... We should look in the mirror. Uh, we as a nation have developed this idea that we need to dominate and win. This is a deeply ingrained in our American psyche. And uh, Trump is not so far from that. So I, don't, I think we need to do something that uh, that Scottish poet Robert Burns talked about. He had a great line, oh, that some power... The gift he gee us to see ourselves as others see us.
1: <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Well, you talk about riding the currents of history, and I think there is a way to um, stealth ourselves to do that, and that is raising, supporting strong, young, conscious leaders. And I think that it, it's it's really grooming the next generation of leadership, because I do think that there are many of us that want to get along with, that want to see America as uh, a country that gets along, what plays well with others, you know, in the schoolyard. In order to do that, however,
2: you have to believe that the other people in the schoolyard are more or less like you and on the same level of you. Uh, actually, ah. we, we have trouble with this. <laughs> we feel that Everybody should play well in the playground under our leadership. And we should tell them what games to play. And we're going to set the rules. That doesn't work. But we're not used to considering ourselves as one nation in a world full of nations. Americans don't look at the world that way. We look at the world as divided between two groups of countries. One group is the United States. The other group is all the other countries in the world, which are made up of people that are very unhappy. And naturally, they're unhappy because they don't have the only thing in life that's worth having, which is the chance to be American. No, uh, Nobody else in the world sees the world this way, Uh, but we do. We really see ourselves as the sun around which all the other countries rotate. And as long as we have this self-image, we're going to have trouble with other countries.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. We are, we are almost out of time and I want to make sure that I give your new book, which is fabulous, a, a great plug here. We are talking about the true flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the birth of American empire. My guest today is author Stephen Kinzer, who has written this book as well as others, The Brothers, Reset, Overthrow, all the Shah's men, and more. You can find out more about Stephen Kinzer on his website at www.stephenkinzer.com. On Twitter, he is at Stephen Kinzer. And on Facebook, Stephen.Kinzer.5. A little bit long Facebook page, but you'll find him there. I know you will. And America and the world, remember the value and joy of a good rant, as I, as we've had today, Stephen, that's for sure. Well, thanks for
2: pointing out that this dilemma is not just political, it's spiritual and psychological.
1: It is. It is. And I, you know, I think the invitation is to go continue the conversation around your dinner table, around, around coffee with your friends, get involved in your communities. I think that's where we start to see the shift happen is it, it is, you know, one step at a time, you know, go go local to go global.
2: Yeah, I like that idea of acting uh, local uh, in terms of global issues. Uh, I do think that we need to realize that we're not – we didn't just start these debates. We're not the first people in the world to discuss any of these things. And we <laughs> can draw so much from what wise people in the past have had to say. You talk about uh, building up new leaders. I tell you that I think one aspect that I see positive of what's going on in the world now, I, I get it from my students where I teach at Brown. Uh, these kids grew up, I think, in the age of Obama, thinking that everything was going to go normally and progress was going to continue in the same direction. Now they're quite shocked. And I think this is leading to a rebirth of consciousness. I think that there is, we could be on the brink of a new national movement that would be political but also spiritual, trying to push America into a, a different direction. We need to think about self restraint and prudence rather than being lustful as we look around the world and promiscuously grabbing whatever is out there. So this is, requires not just a change in public policy, but a change in personal view of the world. And I think we could be on the brink now of uh, a movement that will try to recover some of those values. And you will see that in the period that I'm writing about in my book, this very same argument is being made. We need to redeem our American values by not trying to charge into other countries and dominate them, but to realize that many people in other countries want what we wanted in 1776, And that is a chance to shape their own destiny.
1: Yeah, I I, I can get behind that. Thank you, Stephen Kinzer. Once again, the book is The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. Here come the tunes.
0: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines. Our monthly e at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control. Ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing
1: our conversation about peace and the pursuit of happiness, but we're going to take it from a different angle this time. And this is through conflict, collateral damage, and humanitarianism. My next guest is Daniel Rothbart, who is a professor of conflict analysis and resolution at the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution, George Mason University. Professor Rothbart specializes in identity-based conflicts, civilians in war, and emotions and conflict. He serves as the co-director of the Program on Prevention of Mass Violence. He also chairs the Sudan Task Group, an organization that seeks to build long-term peace in this East African country. His academic writings include more than 50 articles and book chapters in scholarly journals and volumes. His recent publications in Conflict Analysis and Resolution include the following books, Identity, Morality, and Threat, Studies in Violent Conflict, Why They Die, Civilian Devastation in Violent Conflict, Civilian and Modern War, Armed Conflict, and the Ideology of Violence, and Violent Conflict and Peacebuilding, the Continuing Crisis in Darfur. He's currently exploring the power of moral emotions, shame, humiliation, dignity, pride, as central to protracted conflicts or to their resolution. Welcome, Professor Rothbart. Thank you. Oh, It's a pleasure having you. This is a, a, a difficult subject and one that uh, most of us don't really want to talk about. We want to run and hide and not talk about the dirty parts of war.
3: Right. Well, um, it's a very unpleasant topic, and I think there's a lot of motivation for people not to look at the, uh, you know, la- layers and layers of tragedy of uh, modern conflict. Um, so, I, so I understand that motive, but unfortunately, it is, it is part of what's going on in the world.
1: It is. And in in my view as a lay person in this arena, I look at what goes on around the world in terms of violence as a projection, you know, of the collective consciousness. You know, it's an expression of what most of us don't express and those in power or who seek to achieve power are doing so.
3: Well, I think you're getting right to the heart of of a challenge, which is that we want to look at war, at, at violent conflict in a way that validates who we are as human beings. I'm talking about civilians who want to see their soldiers as heroes, which is totally understandable, um, and many civilians who then become soldiers. So, of course, they want to understand the positive glories, the, the parades and the, the self-elevation unfortunately, there's a major side of contemporary conflict, which um, which is basically, which people are blind to. I think that there's uh, the consciousness of society, as you mentioned, also includes layers of willful blindness, um, and almost uh, an attempt to run away from some of the some of the real layers of tragedy of of war. And I'm talking here about what happens to civilian noncombatants.
1: And let's talk about that. At any given time, there are dozens of of wars going on in the world, and people, I don't think, are really aware of that, certainly not so much in the Western world where we're not exposed to these kinds of crises on a daily basis and the collateral damage of course as you mentioned are these civilian non-combatants talk a little bit about the experience for that individual because i don't think we're aware collectively what it's like
3: yeah um i think you know there are reports that happen after the fact and then you know the world is appropriately shocked about what happens to civilians in syria for example syria is a you know, is 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 the tr- the enormous humanitarian crisis of of um, at least a hundred thousand civilians who have been killed, uh, civilian noncombatants, um, one third of whom are um, are uh, no, I'm sorry, nine at least ten thousand of whom are children, and then there's the forced displacement that we all have heard about, where. You know, massive segments of the population are forced to uh, forced to flee their homes, and this is really a tremendous devastation to a family. When a family is forced from their home, in many cases they've lived in that land for generations. It creates a psychic rupture of of trauma, and many times the families um, split. You know, have to travel separately. Um, children without parents. And then, of course, they are subject to tremendous vulnerabilities of disease. And then we've all heard about the tragic case of uh, the flotillas um, in the Mediterranean, uh, many of which, you know, have sunk and caused thousands of deaths. So what happened in Syria is a large scale crisis of what's happened, what happens routinely in um, uh Contemporary conflict, and let me just say this, you know, you started with a a wonderful uh, perspective of looking at kind of our consciousness about this. A lot of people have a view that war is between, you know, one military of one nation against military of another nation and, you know, fighting in the fields, in open fields. So that basically is, is a relic of the past. Contemporary violent conflict involves two kinds of, of violence. One is between, you know, military on one side against military on the other side, obviously. And there's another major segment of violence between military and civilians. And this happens all the time with protracted conflicts. As conflicts Uh, are prolonged, you know, over a year or so on. Civilians are routinely devastated, sometimes intentionally so, as in cases of genocide, like in the Rwanda uh, genocide of 1994, and other times not intentional, but they're kind of in the way, um, as it were. They're treated as objects, as collateral, and their suffering is kind of an just a negative cost on the way for militaries to engage in their strategy.
1: And when we talk about collateral, it's not just the byproduct of war, but in the case I think you're talking about in Syria in particular, where civilians are actually used as shields yeah. in so, conflict.
3: That's right. So um, you know, one horrific tactic that's sometimes used by militia groups um, and it's used by ISIS. ISIS basically is engaged in a genocidal violence right now. Um, and they, um, they have no desire to comply with international humanitarian law. Um, and they use human beings as shields, as you say. And um, they obviously rationalize this. And this is not unusual. It's not just unique to contemporary times. There have been terrorists, if we call this a terrorist group, um, terrorists for, for centuries have violated uh, any sense of humanitarian norm, and they, they, don't, they have no reluctance to destroy civilians. So the, the kind of terrorism that goes on where human beings are used as shields or the so-called suicide bombings of civilians, um, this has been going on for a long, long time and it's, uh, it's not
1: new it's, it's just it's, it's the, the media gets is getting it out there we're seeing it
3: right of course, yeah, I mean the media coverage is amazing um the media coverage is is just incredible, and they sometimes it's it's literally minutes after um a tragedy happened that that was the case with the bombing in nice france i'm sorry the truck uh the the truck um, running over civilians was it 83 civilian casual civilian fatalities in Nice? the media basically um, has it has it um, uh, very quickly responded but on the other hand there, that kind of distorts us from realizing that there's there's devastation that goes on with civilians that media do not cover and as I say large-scale civilian, uh, forced exile. And also there's conflicts that media just completely ignore. For example, the, um, we're all now aware of the use of, of um, chemical weapons by the Assad government in Syria. But there was also, the media did not cover the use of chemical weapons by the Sudanese government against um, its own people last year. Amnesty International has recorded and has reported that um, uh, at least 200 civilians were killed when the government of Sudan used chemical weapons on its own people. So unfortunately, Sudan is not among the countries that gets large media coverage. And yet this kind of devastation goes on.
1: We are going to need to take a break, and before we do, i want to send our listeners over to your site over at george mason um university and i'm going to spell it out because it's a bit of a of a of an odd domain name it's not odd but i mean just it's it's long um and um listeners can visit um scar dot yes, yes and that's s c a r scar dot dot Slash people and then connect with you by after the slash people slash Daniel Rothbart and let me repeat that it's scar.gmu.edu slash people slash Daniel hyphen Rothbart and they can also connect with you on Twitter um, via at scar at G-M-U. And we're we're talking about all of your books in a certain sense, but the one that I think um, uh, we're really discussing today is the one about identity, morality, and threat, studies in violent conflict, and why they die, civilian devastation in violent conflict. And when we come back, I'd love to get more deeply into the book and, and some of the solutions that what we as everyday people, as civilians in a relatively safe and calm space can do to help affect change. Um, are there any other uh, places people can look to connect with you, Professor Rothbart?
3: Um, well, um, my email address, uh, which is um, drothbar at
1: G-M-U Perfect. And when we come back, we will uh, carry on the conversation. Here come those two
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have, If we focus on scarcity, one thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we're talking about something that is not comfortable necessarily, but something that is truly important, and that is awareness of the spoils of war and civilian noncombatants suffering at a higher rate than their combatant counterparts in war. And with me today is Professor Daniel Rothbart who is a professor of conflict analysis and resolution at the School for Conflict Analysis Resolution at George Mason University. He's the author of several books, and we're talking today about identity, morality and threat, as well as another book, Why They Die, Civilian Devastation in Violent Conflict. So, Professor Rothbart, prior to the break, we were talking about uh, examples such as in um, Syria and and Darfur, and I want to sort of circle back the conversation to what we can do about it, what the average individual can do at a local level to affect change.
3: Right. Um, Well, so there's a lot of things that we can do as citizens of this this wonderful country um, and as human beings. Um, the first thing that is so important is to insist upon uh our leaders, political and military leaders that we have a system of counting how many civilians are killed in war. Um, it's very difficult to know precisely how many civilians um, suffer in in war, and we there are certain Countries and certain wars in which it's happened. Actually, the um, Iraq War, uh, Iraq War II, that involved the United States and allies, did have a system of counting the total number of fatalities, and um, and also the World Health Organization was involved in that. But very few countries really implement a system for counting. Um, And this is really uh, an enormous lack and and needs to be done. Um, And there's another thing that we can do as citizens. And this I feel very strongly is to demand of our political and military leaders to tell the truth about the realities of war, both from the soldier's standpoint and from the civilian standpoint. I think, as I mentioned before, there's kind of a willful blindness. Um, there's very strong motive to disguise or to block out our awareness of what happens to civilians. It's in the interest, clearly, of many military um, systems to be blind to what goes on to, to civilians, obviously, because the militaries don't, don't want to be culpable, but if we're human beings and we hold to high moral standards, and by the way, many countries say that their militaries do comply uh, to high moral standards of international humanitarian law, then I think that the political and military leaders have a moral obligation to tell the truth about what happened to civilians and what their what their involvement is in the. Um, in causing civilian suffering. And related to that, I think that we should demand of our uh, political leaders and and our military leaders to address civilian suffering after the violence ends, after the bombs stop falling and one country claims victory or whatever. Um, Which, by the way, from a civilian standpoint there's really not much, uh, not much value in declaring victory. From the civilians who are engulfed in the carnage of violence against their will, this idea of victory is really quite shallow. Um, so I think that nations should, especially those nations who claim to maintain a high moral standards in their military, they should be committed to redress some of the suffering that civilians have um, have endured. Um, I'm not saying this has never happened, and the most obvious case is the Marshall Plan uh, that the U.S. and allies engage in after World War II. And in fact, um, the U.S. United States uh, does uh, award certain um, compensation. For civilians who were killed in Iraq, uh, there's a certain monetary uh, figure that is given to the families of civilians who were killed. So it's not rare. Um, I think all countries should be committed to that and expand upon that.
1: And we're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, social responsibility on a level that um, maybe we're not familiar with. I mean, if if we yeah. go in or we're a party to war in another country it's not good enough to just be uh, have a perceived victory it's uh, we i think there is that moral obligation um to help repair really almost irreparable moral injury
3: yeah um so again if we're really um, uh, claiming we being any state i'm not just referring to the united states but if a state claims to have high moral standards in In a just war and and the proper engagement in war, then they should prepare in advance before the or at the initial stages of war, um, prepare for how they're going to help civilians who are devastated by the carnage. Because as I say, as the war, as, as wars prolong, as they engulf civilians, there will be massive civilian suffering. This is not rare. And, um, it's not, ne- it's not always necessary. So, now, uh,
1: and, and, and talk a little bit about uh, sort of the secondary trauma in, in terms yeah. of the suffering, because there's the obvious suffering that goes on when one's home is bombed and taken away and the, and the loss of a loved one. But the secondary part of the suffering is uh, maybe a health crisis that uh, ensues as a result of War and then not being able to obtain proper medical treatment, and right. that it just perpetuates a cycle that is very challenging to to get out of.
3: Right. So there's a big difference between civilians who are injured or are killed from the direct engagement or engulfed, being engulfed in war, and then those civilians who suffer from the indirect effects, as you were as you are saying. And so, for example, um, when civilians are forced from their home. In some cases, as in a number of conflicts in Africa, they have to travel literally thousands of miles. They have to walk um, thousands of miles to look for a refugee camp. Um, The United Nations has basically saved hundreds of thousands of people in Africa over the years. And yet that travel basically can lead to their their uh, death through starvation, through um, uh, injury, the effects of injury. And then, of course, there's the massive suffering and vulnerability of women who, in, in a number of conflicts, basically are subjected to sexual violence. Yes,
1: um,
3: And this is both during the conflict, where women basically are used as, as sex objects by, by militants in a number of conflicts, um, and then, of course, after the violence, where women basically are vulnerable. Uh, and the
1: youth. I also think about the, the child soldiers, particularly in Africa, who are conscripted. They're given drugs. Um, right. And these, these lost boys, you know, how, how do we help them?
3: Yeah. So that's another layer of tragedy. And um, a number of African countries, um, uh, Sierra Leone, Um, and uh, Liberia, and um, Sudan. They basically, um, a number of children have been soldiers. And then when the fighting ends, they are looking for some security. They're looking for some safety. And so the community is faced with a moral judgment, a moral quandary, and social quandary. What do you do with a soldier who was 12 years old when... And it's usually he, but sometimes it's she commits violence and then wants to come back into the community and um, live a different life. It's it's really a, a horrible problem.
1: And the questions that you pose in your books and the answers that you provide in your books are compelling. And I do believe that we need to have more of this kind of conversation because. Maybe it could prevent some of the future conflicts through awareness, through education and through and through protest, you know, civil civil protest on our part. This is not okay. War is never a good thing.
3: Right. Um, And I think we can basically take a humanitarian approach to war. And what that means is that we should demand that the enemy basically instead of being injured, they should be captured. And maybe instead of being killed, they should be wounded. Um, obviously, that's not ideal. Obviously, it'd be better if there were no wars, but um, non. But but the enemy should be spared as much as possible, and of course, the non-combatants should, in particular, be spared as much as possible. So, um, I think we should demand of our leaders, as I say, um, a system that proactively engages us to prepare for what happens to civilians. Um, You know, we have a a enormous commitment to health care for citizens in this country. And even though there's political controversies, we all know that everyone needs health care and you need a complicated system of advanced sophisticated professionals to provide us all with health care. Well, I think that we should have a system of health care for civilians who we know will be devastated in, um, in a protracted war. In other words, bring in our capacity, our humanitarian capacity to save lives, bring it to civilians, even civilians in other countries. Yeah. And that's a humanitarian perspective that rises above uh, parochial you know, self-interest of any particular nation
1: professor rothbart we are out of time once again the book we were focusing on today why they die civilian devastation in violent conflict to learn more about professor daniel rothbart please visit the website over at george mason university and i'm going to once again give that um Domain. It's scar, S C A R dot G M U dot E D U, slash people, slash Daniel hyphen Rothbart. On Twitter, um, you can find him at scar at GMU. Professor Rothbart, thank you. Here okay. are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination, it cannot be bought, sold, or traded. It will never invite you to the party because happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us today on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Stephen Kinzer and Daniel Rothbart, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness
0: is your inside job. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TokiNet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa LisaKamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.